I'm Seth for Privacy, and thanks so much for joining us on the journey to sovereignty. We're beyond thrilled to have a place for us to chat about all things sovereignty, the why and how of reclaiming your digital sovereignty, and to give you all a chance to chime in, ask questions, and join the conversation. Journey to Sovereignty is brought to you by Foundation, where we build Bitcoin-centric tools that empower you to reclaim your digital sovereignty. This includes our Passport Hardware Wallet and Envoy mobile app. And on today's episode, we're going to start a bit of a more technical deep dive into all things Bitcoin privacy, starting with why Bitcoin transactions reveal the information they do and what information we must protect to preserve our privacy while using Bitcoin. As always, joined by Q&A, head of customer experience here at Foundation, and our CEO and co-founder, Zach Herbert. How's it going, guys? Going pretty well. Looking forward to uh, to diving into some uh, base, Bitcoin basics on uh, privacy. Yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, going great. Let's do this. Before we dive into really the, the how of protecting privacy within Bitcoin, I, I want to lay the groundwork for more of the, the why. Um, and first, I want to chat a little bit about why Bitcoin reveals so much information on chain. Um, when we talk about what information it reveals, normally we're talking about the sender, the recipient, and the amount sent in each transaction. Um, but what's the reason for Bitcoin revealing this information? And why isn't all of that just hidden by default? Yeah, I can uh, kick it off, I think. Um, so the one of the core principles of, of Bitcoin and why Bitcoin was started was uh, was transparency and openness. Um, so I think that was probably one of the main influences uh, that uh, drove Satoshi, you know, that they or them, whoever whoever that was, to uh, to build Bitcoin in such a way that um, it allows for all pop all network participants, be that a miner, uh, an end user, a uh, wallet provider, anything like that, to be able to easily validate um, key aspects of the, um, the the network, the Bitcoin network, and the transactions uh, that run on top of it. Um, and that's so that um, all of the participants can keep each other honest, basically. So, uh, as a user, I want to be, I want to make sure that miners aren't uh, printing. Bitcoin out of thin air. Um, and as a miner, I want to make sure that other miners aren't doing the same thing. Um, but to break that down even further, you know, as an end user, um, I want to make sure that if if somebody's sending me some Bitcoin, that they uh, haven't already spent that somewhere else. Um, and if there was a lot of obfuscation on the network, then that would be uh, significantly more difficult to be able to do that. Um, and just as an end user, uh, I'm not the only person that is uh, concerned with whether or not Bitcoin is what we call double spent or, you know, somebody trying to send, spend the same funds twice. Uh, miners are also concerned with that because they are the uh, the transaction validators, if you like, Um and if they were to uh, try and mine a block with um, some, you know, double spent funds, then that block would become invalid, and they're going to lose that revenue. So it's all about transparency um, and being able to to validate that all of the other network participants are acting in good faith, and that everybody's kind of uh, playing by the same rule set, if you like. Um, and I think. Uh, one final thing in terms of transparency that makes Bitcoin as an asset super, super important that we've never been able to do before with a, a monetary asset that's used on this sort of scale. <clears throat> and that's to be able to, to verify the sub total circulating supply of all of the Bitcoins ever in existence at any point in time. So 
you know, we've spoken, many people have spoken about this on podcasts before, but anybody with access to a computer with, you know, even a small amount of computing power can um, calculate all of the Bitcoins that are in existence at any time, whenever they like. Um, You certainly can't do that with uh, the fiat monetary system and you definitely can't do that with physical gold either. So um, a very important property and, you know, one of the things that drives Bitcoin's core value. Do you guys think there's... um like an inherent trade-off between like um, means of transaction versus the being the best possible money. Cause that's, that's typically how I think about it where like you're making a private, like Bitcoin itself is making a privacy trade-off so that every single person can verify the total money supply at any given time and see the entire state of the ledger. Right. Because I'm sure we'll get to this more as we as we you know talk um, about the state of privacy on Bitcoin today. But I feel like you have to give up some privacy on the base ledger in order to empower every user to be able to at any point in time verify the total supply. And if you buy in, you know, d- depending on your economic worldview, one of the you know best properties of money would be this this finite supply. So it's like. It's like these protocol decisions are designed more to enable Bitcoin as the best form of money and less about thinking about, you know, like end user privacy or transacting privately. Yeah, for sure. I think uh, that's definitely a trade-off that's become clear that Bitcoin has made, um, as we've had other cryptocurrencies around that have made different trade-offs, you know, swaying one way or the other, um, for better or for worse. Um, But Bitcoin's certainly taken the openness and the transparency uh, side of things. Um, And what we've seen in recent years is that almost all of the privacy enhancements that we've seen to let's just call it the overall Bitcoin ecosystem, have all come from the application layer, from from wallet developers. It's all done, you know, all of the types of obfuscation methods and privacy tools and tips that we've are probably going to discuss throughout the next 50 minutes um, have all come from the, well, 99% of them have come from the, the application level, layer um, so that we can uh, continue to leverage Bitcoin's transparency and the the pros that that brings with it, but also try to claw back, you know, some of the trade-offs that you just alluded to, Zach, around, you know, we don't have core base, la- base layer privacy as some of the uh, other options in the cryptocurrency space do. But obviously, you know, there's trade-offs to and from on both sides of that uh, wedge. Yeah, and I mean, y'all, y'all know where where I come from from this. I mean, I'm I'm somewhat of a privacy by default uh, maximalist, so I have a little bit differing views than I think many Bitcoiners on what I would like to see in Bitcoin. Um, but when we do look at that transparency, it it is all about trade offs. I mean, even even if we do talk about something like Monero, which I view as a, a really powerful tool for freedom and a powerful tool for transacting, the trade off of the default privacy is that you have to trust a bit more advanced cryptography to keep that supply um, visible and in check and actually validate it. So there are trade-offs even when you take those approaches that other chains like like Monero have taken. Um, and Bitcoin has, for better or worse, I think you can look at it either way, has decided to, to stick with transparent by default and then build privacy into uh, upper layers. But that doesn't mean that the base layer itself um, can't have privacy. And, and obviously we'll... We'll talk quite a bit um, about that as we as we walk through this. Um, but before we get too much into again the the how 
that we protect privacy within Bitcoin. Can we break down a little bit of what the key parts of a transaction are? I, I know if, if people are deeply familiar with Bitcoin, this will certainly be something that's a little bit more on the, the intro side. But if you don't have a, a good grasp on how Bitcoin transaction ex- transactions actually work, it can be hard to understand why privacy is difficult on Bitcoin, why the different approaches need to be taken, etc. Yeah, I can uh, kick that off. So uh, at the sort of base level, core transactions are made up of inputs and outputs. So the inputs, you know, the clue is kind of in the name. The inputs are what you use to construct the transaction and the outputs are, you know, on the output side of it and they are the the consequence of the, the way that the transaction is structured. So to make it super simple, imagine you go into a store um, and you buy something that costs... Uh, $15 and you give uh, a $20 note, your input is $20 and then your output would be a $5 note. Similar sort of concept in terms of Bitcoin's inputs and outputs. So in terms of transparency, all of the inputs and all of the outputs, anybody can go and look at them on what we call a block explorer at any time. Um, the, The outputs are generally sent to new sort of public keys or scripts, uh, which is a slightly technical term, but the outputs are where the Bitcoin goes to the recipient essentially. Um, so if Seth was going to send me some Bitcoin uh, and he was going to send me a million sats, you know, there might be a, a 1 million sat output um, or UTXO unspent transaction output to call it correctly uh, that would be sent to my wallet, which I could then use as an input to a subsequent transaction. And that cycle just repeats as, uh, you know, each, each time that Bitcoin is transacted from one person to the next. Um the miners are also sort of technically part of a transaction. Um, so the way that a user would pay fees uh, is that, again, using the instance that Seth is uh, sending me a million sats, um, what Seth wallet would actually do without him even knowing it when he sets his fee rate is it would just knock a little bit off that million sats and kind of leave it outside of the transaction. Uh, the miners would see that and then sort of scoop it up. Um, there isn't actually an output for a fee. The miners just collect all of the differences between the inputs and the outputs and then sort of pay themselves that um, if they do successfully mine a block um, and all of the end users can quickly verify whether they've done that correctly or not. That's one of the, the other powerful things about you know the transparency within Bitcoin is we can check whether or not the, the miners are, are cheating and paying themselves too much. Um, so yeah, all of the inputs, all of the outputs, all visible. Um, and what's also visible as well on the spending side is the type of what we call spending script. So you can see whether or not it's a single signature or a multi-signature um, type of wallet that's being spent from. So that's, there's also that sort of information that is shared uh, with the asterisk or the nuance that, uh, you know, as we delve more into Taproot world, that will change. But for the time being, it's true of 99% of transactions. Uh, and finally, the all of the information... Um, within a transaction is uh, run through a computation called a hash function, uh, which gives what we call a transaction ID output, which is basically just a really long string of letters and numbers that is unique to that transaction so that you can go and uh, use it as your reference point to look at all of the details that uh, that I've just talked about. So that's a a rough sort of guide of what constitutes a Bitcoin transaction in simple terms, at least. Yeah, I think that's a great overview, and I don't want to kind of beat a dead horse there, but I, I do think that that's really important to understand that. Uh, and it, I thought it was interesting chatting about this beforehand. I actually had never connected the dots that miners don't actually create, or that there's not an output 
for the transaction fee. So that was just a little piece of like um, that I'm still learning about Bitcoin and, and didn't really understand that that was how it worked. So always interesting, even diving back into the the beginner kind of level details. There's always little things that I'm still picking up along the way. Um, and while we, we won't get to all the important pieces of privacy that come into play while looking at Bitcoin today, uh, that's why I labeled this one part one because there's definitely a lot more that we're going to get to. And I don't even know if we'll cover what I have planned for today, just depending on how how time goes. Um, I do want to start with the first key piece of information. Uh, and you touched on that with the, the input side of how transactions work. But it's really about the sender and their past transactions. So how is the information about the sender themselves revealed on-chain in Bitcoin? Yeah, so I've alluded to the fact that Bitcoin uses what we call UTXOs or unspent transaction outputs. Um, these UTXOs are never uh, destroyed. They're kind of, you know, when you spend some UTXOs, they're, they're, I like to use the analogy that they're kind of melted down um, and then they're reformed in this correct sizes for the outputs of the transaction. The One of the great things about that is it's really easy to um, sum up all of these UTXOs uh, to know how much Bitcoin is in existence. You know, that's a that's one of the, the big pluses that Bitcoin comes with that we spoke about earlier. One of the downsides of that is it, me it means that you can kind of um, use some general heuristics to kind of uh, follow the, the flow of funds across the network um, and use some assumptions to say, okay, well, I've seen these three uh, UTXOs or inputs go into this transaction and there's two outputs. So there's only a certain probability of um, what could have happened uh, in terms of that transaction. Um, so that I can say, well, Alice uh, could have spent to Bob uh, output number one or she could have spent output number two and the other one might have been the change. That's what we call assumptions or heuristics and that's what companies like Chain Analysis do to try and track the flow of funds um, across the bit uh, across the blockchain um but to kind of make it a little bit simpler you know anytime you make a transaction obviously your recipient knows all of the details of that transaction because they they are a part of it as the recipient so they can go and look at you know mempool.space a block explorer or anything like that to see um what made up the transaction the inputs and the outputs again um and obviously they'll know that if you're if they're the one being paid that all of the inputs belong to you as the payer um, but what they can do then is follow the chain back to the previous transaction and to the previous transaction and, and follow that chain back to try and glean certain bits of information uh, about you as the sender. Now, depending on the makeup of your wallet and how you construct the spend, that might not tell them anything. It might tell them a little bit or it could tell them a lot. Taking it to the absolute extreme, um, Again, using the analogy that Seth is paying me, let's say he's paying me 1 million sats, which is, I don't know, at the time of writing, maybe like $250, something like that. Um, if Seth pays me from a single UTXO, that is uh, five Bitcoin in size, then I know automatically just by looking at those transaction details that Seth's a pretty wealthy Bitcoiner. And that might make me want to go and pay him um a visit to his house because I know he's got a lot of Bitcoin. Again, that's an extreme example, but um, it's wholly possible based on the way that the UTXO model in Bitcoin works. So you have to be quite careful about, you know, depending on who you're paying and what information that you want to keep to yourself. Um, 
yeah, you have to be careful as to how you construct your transactions. Uh, unfortunately, not all wallets uh, allow you to kind of customize that or to take steps to prevent sharing such information. Um, but yeah, we're, we're, I'm sure we're going to come on to that, uh, you know, the tools and tips and techniques um, and the various different wallets that are, that are good about this to, to help you sort of obfuscate that kind of information. One um, kind of disappointing anecdote I've heard over the years is that uh, more wealthy Bitcoiners using exchanges to send money because they're not really sure how to use good privacy practices, right? And if you send from an exchange, then you don't know what the individual's net worth is in Bitcoin terms. I know I see that I see the frown face from you, Seth. So I, th I think that's something that's always come up year over year. And so, you know, hopefully what we can do today is at least give some some basic tips to people to, you know, just uh, lay out some basic good Bitcoin privacy practices so that you can feel confident as a user taking self-custody that you're not going to completely, you know, dox your entire uh, Bitcoin stash. Yeah, I mean, that, that is a legitimate anecdote I've heard repeatedly as well. I know o Odell talks about that where people just assume that he's going to kind of do some some tracing and try to figure out where their their sats are coming from for fun. And so people have just started paying him out of Cash App and other custodial wallets because when you pay from an app like that, while well, the custodian, the exchange, has obviously full insight into who you're paying, uh, how much you're paying, etc., the person on the other end only knows that they're getting paid from an exchange. And it's very hard to do tracing through the exchange there. So it's an unfortunate approach that people are taking. And it's something that uh, we've seen grow. And I think it's something like uh, Odell specifically is worried that it'll kind of become the norm that you'll just trust a custodian with your spending stash. And even though you're revealing all your information to them, you're gaining some privacy from the other person in the transaction. So it's definitely something we want to avoid because there are so, so many issues with with that approach. Uh, that's why the tools on Bitcoin for privacy improving is is so important. Um, so when we look at protecting the sender in that situation, um, and it, when we want to try to achieve something a little bit more like cash, or when you, you look at cash, and it's kind of the holy grail of financial privacy in the sense that when you pay someone with cash, no one else knows that, that transaction happened, no one else knows who paid who, no one else knows the amounts involved, and the person you're paying doesn't even gain any information about you um, unless you just like open up your wallet and dump $100 bills out and choose from them or something like that. Um, so it's kind of the the holy grail of financial privacy. So is there are there tools out there right now or approaches out there right now that can help us to get Bitcoin in its naturally transparent state a little bit closer to uh, the ideal of, of digital cash? Well, I feel like the, the first most obvious place to start is address reuse. Um, that's probably the most common privacy mistake people make. And I know we're getting like very basic here, but, but it's every time about that in 2023, but it, it is still a, a legitimate concern for privacy. And, and one of the concerns and look like we, we wrestled with, um, you know, design decisions when we we're working on our Envoy uh, mobile app, where you know there's kind of two different ways that that software wallets approach this one is that when you click the receive button in your wallet you get a bitcoin address and it only gives you a new bitcoin address once you've actually received funds to the previous address um so if you're giving out your bitcoin address to let's say five different people 
um, until you received funds at it, a lot of wallets will actually display the same address. What we do and what some other you know wallets do, like Samurai, for example, is every time you click receive, you get a new address. And you know we do that to make sure that you don't make a mistake and give out the same receive address to multiple people. But I think that's like the the first starting point where every time you are receiving Bitcoin, always give a different address to every party that you're transacting with. Yeah, the second one that I'll just kind of chime in with, we can we can go from there is really putting thought into whether or not you should consolidate funds. I know that a lot of times when we enter like a, a low fee environment where one sat per V byte cheap transactions can go through, a lot of recommendations are to to just sweep all from your wallet, combine all of your UTXOs into one big UTXO so that you save on fees later on. When you do that, what you're also doing is you're telling everyone who was involved in those transactions previously that you are the owner of all of these inputs. And you're telling the next person you spend the total value in your wallet. You're telling them all the past historical transactions because now they can go back and connect all of those UTXOs very easily. So there's a, there's a lot of issues if you do do that. Sometimes it is advantageous. And like something we talked about on the team is if you're if you have funds that are kind of in the same bucket and they're like maybe they're no KYC and they've all been used with the same vendor, combining those is fine because the same person they already know that you're involved in those transactions. Um, but what you usually don't want to do, especially, is like combine funds between funds you've bought on a KYC exchange and funds you've bought on a maybe a non KYC exchange like BISC or something because then you're linking your identity as well to these other funds. So consolidation is is really potentially problematic, and especially the kind of the sweep all or uh, send all from a wallet at once is almost always a bad idea. Sometimes it makes sense, but you should at least do a kind of a, a long double take before you actually hit that, that send all button. Yeah, I think to add a bit of weight to to what you guys have just been saying around sort of input selection or UTXO selection, um, an analogy that I like to give is to make sure that you've got um, a good array of different inputs available to you such that you can, um, you have sort of a UTXO size for all, you know, possible spending uh, eventualities. So you might have a collection of small UTXOs for topping up your Mulvad or for um, you know renewing your VPS server this month or something like that, but you then you might have a collection, a smaller collection of large outputs for paying you know larger bills, um, and by doing that, you can spend as few inputs as possible in a transaction to um, share as little information as possible. You know, if you're just spending from a single UTXO, then you're only sharing that you're in control of that single UTXO, um, so you're limiting the information that's been sent. One of the ways that you can uh, work up to having a good selection of different types of inputs uh, is to do CoinJoin. Um, you know, give you a perfect example of my favorite uh, CoinJoin implementation, uh, Whirlpool, which is uh, found within Samurai Wallet and Sparrow Wallet. Um, they have four different pool sizes. So, you know, over time, you can enter all of these different pools um, to break your Bitcoin up, um, not only gain a hell of a lot of privacy uh, along the way, um, which is obviously the main purpose of this, but then you can break your Bitcoin up into 
uh, different pots of they have a hundred thousand sat pool for your small spends, um, a one million sat pool, five million sat pool, and a fifty million sat pool. So you're pretty much covered there for sort of all spending eventualities, such that you can um, have a pool of UTXOs ready to go for whichever type of spend it is that you want to make. Uh, and that's completely aside from the fact of you know using Whirlpool will break all of what we call deterministic links, such that um, if uh, you know, if Seth was to pay me directly from a Whirlpool output um, I, and I wanted to kind of trace his transaction back to see where his UTXOs come from, um, I'd kind of come up to a, a brick wall essentially where I'd see a Whirlpool transaction. I'd be like, okay, crap. Uh, I've got no idea which one of these inputs belongs to Seth because everybody kind of looks the same. And that's the whole point of a coin join is it puts up a brick wall and breaks those links between the the future and the past uh, usage. Um, so that's a really, you know, double whammy in terms of coin join. You know, you can gain privacy and do some UTXO management at the same time. Jun, are you sure it's a brick wall and not a uh, stone wall? That's a perfect segue. It's almost like we planned that, and I promise, I that, promise that, that, that we actually, we actually didn't. Um, but that's perfect. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, another one of the um, spending tools um, that, again, both Samurai and uh, Sparrow Wallet offer is a is a Stonewall transaction. Um, now, a Stonewall transaction basically uses multiple of your UTXOs, which you might think is a kind of a bad thing because we've just talked about spending as few inputs as possible. Um, but the reason that Stonewall does this um, is to be able to create multiple additional outputs that technically speaking are not needed in the transaction, but the uh, among uh, your intended payment, again, using the analogy, Seth is paying me. Um, if Seth was to do that with a Stonewall transaction, there would be one output that pays me, but there'd also be three what we call decoy outputs that uh, would kind of thwart um, some chain analysis attempt on the transaction because they'd be looking at that and go, okay, well, I've got sort of six or seven inputs from here on the left-hand side, and then I've got four outputs on the right-hand side. So is that one person paying four people or is it three people paying two people? You can't say with any great deal of certainty what's actually gone on in that transaction. So you're, again, obfuscating the information about the transaction and you know who is paying who or how many people are involved in this transaction. So a really great tool. Uh, it's actually on by default in, in Samurai Wallet and I think Sparrow Wallet is just called, there's a privacy toggle and then Sparrow Wallet will do that automatically for you as well. Uh, super simple to achieve in both of those. And finally, um, on the same vein as Stonewall, um, both tools also have um, Sorry, both wallets also have a tool called Stonewall X2, um, which again, clues in the name. Um, it's exactly the same as a Stonewall where there's multiple inputs, multiple outputs to obfuscate the amount of information that's being spent. The difference with the Stonewall X2 is that you do that with a mixing partner. Um, so instead of all of the inputs um, on the transaction belonging to me, um, it might be me putting three inputs into it, Zach putting two inputs into it, we're paying Seth, and then there's a load of change outputs that are um, shared amongst both Zach and myself. Again, so more people um, adding more confusion. Um, and the, 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 the real kicker with both of these tools, Stonewall and Stonewall X2, is that on chain, you know, if you were to look at one in, uh, in a block explorer, they look absolutely identical. So anytime you see that sort of transaction footprint, um, you have no idea whether it's one person or whether it's multiple people constructing the same transaction. So a really great way of sort of uh, obfuscating it in a really transparent ledger where all of the information is uh, is shared.
But the second of the key pieces of information that we talk about when we talk about protecting privacy in Bitcoin is uh, the amount. And this is one that can be really, really tricky because as we talked about, the amount in every transaction, the amount of every input, every output, transaction fees, all of these amounts are totally transparent and visible to anyone with a block explorer, anyone running a node. Um, so it's very tricky to hide this amount uh, by default. But why is protecting the amount sent in a transaction important? And, and what are the key things that outside observers can learn from a transaction if they're using just the amounts involved? Yeah, so we alluded earlier to the fact that unfortunately we have what we call chain analysis firms that uh, literally make it their business to try and uh, track the flow of funds across the blockchain um, and to de-anonymize people and so that they can gain an understanding and uh, of what's going on and then sell that data to um, people who are bored and interested. Uh, one of the one of the uh, ways that they do this is by um, tracking amounts uh, across the blockchain. Um, again. Inputs, outputs, amounts, all completely transparent. So um, there's a couple of heuristics or assumptions that these companies make or that anybody can make by looking at a transaction um, based on the amount. The first among which is to um, look at the, you know, if there's two outputs on a transaction and one of them is a round amount of a million sats and then the change amount is, let's say, you know, 200,596 sats there's a very high likelihood knowing how humans operate and we really really like round numbers that the uh, spend amount is going to be a million sats um, just because you know there's a global understanding that that's how humans work and they like to spend round amounts because it makes them feel warm and fuzzy so that's one of the uh, the amounts uh, sorry that's one of the uh, assumptions that can be um that can be applied to transactions. Uh, and the the flip to that is that, you know, if there is a spend with a, a round amount output, that would be determined as the chain, as the uh, spend, sorry. Um, that means that the assumption of the other outputs is that it's a change output. So we know that the uh, the non-round amount is going back to the recipients, so to the sender's wallet, sorry. Um, and that can be marked to be watched to, you know, see ne the next time that that output is used in a transaction. We know who it belongs to because it's the it's the child output of you know the transaction I've just talked about. Um, so when you are handling these change outputs, um, you know if you if they're improperly handled and you, let's say I think you alluded to this earlier, Seth or Zach, one of you did um, that if you were to get a change output from a spend to let's say a KYC exchange. Um, the KYC exchange knows who you are. Obviously, you have to give them information and they can see the transaction and they can see that change output come back to your wallet. If you then spend that to, uh, let's say, a darknet market um, that has that uses a, a known address or a fixed address, even worse, then the exchange will know exactly who you've paid to and obviously may decide to report you to the, the, the relevant authorities if they they choose to do so again taking it to the extremes but these are legitimate uh, things that do happen from time to time uh, when using a transparent ledger if you're not careful about the way in which you spend and the the way that you manage your inputs and outputs in your transactions yeah one, one other way that i've seen uh, the amounts involved in a transaction causing problems is i think people have assumed that they can use things like uh, decentralized exchanges or instant exchangers like um, Shapeshift or things like that to actually break the link between their past transactions and future transactions. So a lot of times they'll send funds in, swap them for another currency like Monero, and then swap that Monero back for Bitcoin and then send it to their own wallet. Um, 
But the issue with that that a lot of people don't think about is if you're, let's say you're sending in a million sats and you're swapping it for Monero and you're swapping that Monero back for Bitcoin and you withdraw, it's going to be a million sats minus transaction fees minus exchange fee. And that's pretty straightforward for someone to to guess and then to try and trace those funds through that exchange. That's something that's happened many, many times in the past, something that law enforcement has used in the past to trace funds across um, across different cryptocurrencies. It's it's something that's very much done and doable today. Um, so that's where, like, even though there's, yes, there's not a direct tie between those addresses on chain, there's not a direct tie between the inputs when you're going to the exchange and the outputs when you're withdrawing, because of the amount correlation, you can actually connect the dots with a, a very strong sense of certainty unless you take a lot of extra steps in that process, which almost no one does properly. Yeah, and um, one potential way to address this on a more regular basis when you're transacting is to use PayJoin, um, which is like a miniature collaborative transaction where the sender and the receiver both put some money in. So you don't really know, or I should say a third party, like a blockchain analysis company doesn't really know what the actual amount of the transaction is. Like they don't know what, how much you're paying for something. They don't know who the sender is and who the receiver is. Uh, but the problem is that I, I think there's there's kind of conflicting pay join standards. You know, we uh, we on our website um, on our BTC Pay uh, server, uh, we do have pay join enabled, but it's very rare to actually get a uh, pay join transaction. Yeah, I think one of the just to really spell that out in terms of pay join, and one of the things that's super cool about it if you do use it and again like zach said unfortunately it's not that widely adopted uh with one caveat that i'll come on to in a sec um is that again using the analogy that you know i'm a merchant and seth wants to pay me a million sats for you know he wants to buy a passport um the if anybody looked at the um the transaction on a block explorer they would not see the amount one of 1 million sats um, because of the way that the inputs and the outputs are, are uh, constructed um, and the fact that both Seth and I were to, you know, be um, on the input side as well as me being the recipient, um, you wouldn't see the amount 1 million sats. So it does completely obfuscate the actual amount being sent. Um, and this is a, a, a type of transaction uh, called steganographic, I believe the technical term is, but it basically just means, you know, it's hiding in plain sight. Um, so super cool with PayJoin. And, and the caveat that I was referring to, and, and Zach also alluded to that, is um, the conflicting standards. Uh, so you do have BIP78 PayJoin, um, which is what's run on a BTC Pay server. You know, you can use that to buy a passport if you would like. Um, arguably, the other and more widely adopted one is the implementation that is found within um, Sparrow Wallet and Samurai Wallet, which um, is what they call Stowaway, um, which works in exactly the same way. The transactions look similar on chain where the both the sender and receiver both um, implement inputs. Um, but there is like a competing standard, uh, which I believe, you know, to the for the time being does have, um, uh, you know, wider adoption, probably because they're more accessible because anybody can download Sparrow Wallet to their desktop or download Samurai Wallet to their Android phone. So it's just um, a little bit more uh, easy to access versus, you know, running yourself a BTC Pay server, which is one of the few places where you can actually do a, a BIP78 uh, pay join as it's defined. 
Yeah, it's definitely one of those scenarios where we're hopeful for more and more adoption. I think PayJoin and, and Stowaway specifically are are so powerful because all they require is interaction between the actual sender and receiver. Whereas on like a normal coin join, you don't need to find a group of people and coordinate and do all of this. It's it's just using the inputs of both sender and receiver together to hide amounts, to hide the true spend, to hide the true uh, the true inputs. There's there's real power in that, but it's something where we we really have to see broader adoption. So. If you or any uh, merchants you know, run BTC Pay server, it's very, very easy to enable there. Um, it's really just, uh, I think, a checkbox, and you have to have a hot wallet, which is the only real caveat is to do something like PayJoin, you have to have Bitcoin hot to be able to build those transactions. But definitely something where I'd love to see um, see broader adoption around that. Were there any other any other steps that the average Bitcoiner can take to protect that amount sent? I think we might have covered all of them now. Yeah, I think the the rounded amounts one is is an easy one that anybody can can do really uh, when making their payments. Obviously, that's not always possible. You know, if you if you're trying to buy something for a fixed amount, then you know that's how much you've got to pay. But if you're I don't know paying to yourself to cold storage or paying a friend, um, you know, make sure it's if you can make uh, a non round amount just to kind of um, thwart against that commonly used heuristic. Uh, to try and track the flow of funds. I also talked about Stonewall earlier um, to, to kind of, um, in a different vein, but Stonewall, by, because of the nature that it adds decoy amounts, uh, again, you know, the, the amount itself is not obfuscated, but the um, the true payment output uh, is obfuscated and the amounts are, um, most of the amounts on a Stonewall are different. There is two identical ones, again, to to try and thwart the, the, the flow of funds. Um, but, the nature of those additional outputs do uh, protect which is the true spend. Um, I think that uh, just about covers all of the basics, at least. Any other kind of top of mind uh, privacy things with protecting the the sender and the amount specifically, or just kind of more generally, Zach or CUNY? Uh, I think to obfuscate the the sender, um, this is kind of from a specific party and something that I talk about a lot is, you know, uh, where you where you source your Bitcoin from, um, I am a staunch advocate of uh, obtaining no KYC Bitcoin, um, and the reason that I do that, you know, that, sorry, just to break that down, that's uh, purchasing Bitcoin or obtaining Bitcoin via a method that doesn't tie it to your government name. Um, so one of the great, well, a couple of the great methods you, that you can do that is from peer to peer. Um, peer-to-peer exchanges like Basic Hoddle Hoddle, RoboSat, Peach, Bitcoin, uh, all of that where you can buy Bitcoin from another person. Um, and when you obtain Bitcoin from this sort of method, um, you are obviously hiding yourself as the sender from, um, let's say, Coinbase if you were to buy from them. Because anytime that you were buy, to buy from a centralized exchange like that um, and to withdraw to your own wallet, which is a great first step, they still know that that Bitcoin's yours and what address it's gone. So that, you know, if I was to do that and then move on to then spend to Seth uh, or to a .NET market, then Coin, uh, Coinbase can see that I'm doing that. So I've got no privacy even from Coinbase to in terms of me as a spender for my future transactions um so you can use some of the you know if you are in that situation you can still use some of the tools that we've mentioned to try and uh, obfuscate from then onwards um but you know in terms of that initial uh, first step from the exchange unfortunately um you know coinbase is going to know or whoever it is is going to know exactly where your bitcoin's gone and and potentially who you're spending it to depending on how you do that yeah i think that's uh 
Really good point, Q&A. Um, I think the other thing you can do is uh, use a wallet that supports coin control, you know, that allows you to tag or label your transactions so that you can actually group them. Um, so an example would be if you're transacting with an exchange, you can group that um, in a, you know, in a label or tag that you call exchange or KYC coins, then it makes it easier to not commingle coins from different tags. Um, we are working on that for our Envoy app. So hopefully we'll be able to bring that out in the next couple months. Um, but there are some great wallets, you know, that, that do support, um, coin control. It's, it's, it's not as common. Um, and it's, it's a little difficult, I think, to do in a user-friendly way, but hopefully it'll become, you know, more and more common over time. Yeah. I think one of the, one of the kind of downsides or why we've seen not, not seen a wider adoption of, uh, people leveraging the, the, the power of coin control and being able to control and spend which UTXOs go into which transactions is the ongoing maintenance that it requires. Um, you know, if you're transacting frequently, um, you're going to have to be updating your, uh, different labels, uh, on a regular basis. Um, you know, most labels should be for the purpose of the transaction or who you're paying. Um, so that you, you know, in a year's time, when you look back and you've got a change output from that transaction that you want to spend, um, you can make an educated decision whether or not you want to include that change output as an input to pay your local drug dealer or your, to give to your church for the for their uh, Sunday donations. Um, if you haven't got robust labels there, then you can't make that informed decision. So it's one of those things where you kind of have to do yourself a fate a favor so that you can uh, you know be be helped in the future and, and to be able to make those good decisions uh, because unfortunately you know with the all of the transparency that we've talked about on the bitcoin ledger um, if you don't pay attention to this then it can only t it can take just one single mistake to um you know to kind of really unwind your privacy in a big big way depending again on how you transact and who you're transacting with so you just got to be really careful and labeling and coin control is a, is a big big part of uh, you know doing that from from the get-go yeah i'm thankful too for the new standards for actually being able to, to export that information as well um and like labeling of transactions being exportable is a, a new bip i can't remember the number off the top of my head but a, a new bip that craig raw the, the author of sparrow wallet recently proposed and the ability to to bring that between wallets to to export that and restore it are, is really really important so that you don't lose that. I mean, one of the things that I've run into is I've hopped around wallets quite a bit uh, and not thought about it. And when I go ahead and restore my wallet into something else, like if I've moved from let's say Samurai Wallet to Sparrow, in the past you haven't been able to export any of your your labeling or anything like that. Uh, so you kind of have to start fresh, which can be kind of dangerous from a privacy perspective. So. Also looking forward to the actual ability to export that and for uh, the ability to easily back up that data. Because that's almost like, it's yes, it's not as important as having your funds via your seed, but it's almost as important because it, it's really what allows you to be able to preserve privacy on a more granular level when using Bitcoin. Yeah, I've heard some heartbreaking stories of people who've been quite robust with their with their labeling and that have been transacting quite heavily for years and years and have somehow lost access to the to the to the wallet in question and um have lost all of that label data so that, you know, 
obviously they didn't lose access to the fund because they had their seed and pass phase backed up securely. But when they were to import that into a you know the same wallet again or to the to a new client, um, you know they've got potentially hundreds of uh, of UTXOs and they've got pretty much no clue where they've all come from. Um, so it's going to be difficult to to make those educated decisions to spend wisely and you know as and when they in their future transactions. So I guess if you do find yourself in that. Um, in that situation, um, or even in a situation where you're listening to this and thinking, you know, shit, I've got loads of UTXOs and um, I've got no idea where they come from. You know, some of them might have come from BISC and some of them might have come from change outputs from paying friends and whatnot. Um, a, a good first step would be to um, use a CoinJoin implementation to kind of give those UTXOs a fresh start. Um, now, obviously, you've got to be careful as to which ones you combine when going into the coin join because you know as soon as you combine utxos you show what we call common ownership so um although those um outputs will have a fresh start and you can kind of start your labeling from scratch there um you've just got to be careful you know if you have got hundreds and you've forgotten where they've come from or your labels have been lost to kind of um have that trade-off between you know not sending every single one into a coin join individually because it's going to cost you a small fortune in fees versus, you know, combining some of them um, leaking a little bit of information on the input side to save a bit of fees so that you can combine them. Um, so it's just a bit of a trade-off to be had and only, um, only the individual can make that decision. But, you know, it, it probably uh, worth mentioning because I'm sure there's quite a few people listening to this that have probably never labeled that might have, that might see the benefit of it now and, you know, don't know where to, to get started. Thanks for jumping in for this episode of Journey to Sovereignty, and I hope you'll join us for our next live Twitter space every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. GMT. Joining us live gives you a chance to listen in, participate, and get your questions answered on the spot. Follow us at FoundationDVCS on Twitter to keep up with the latest news, get notifications when we go live, and much more. See you at the next one, and thanks for joining us on the Journey to Sovereignty. Sovereignty.